Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 308, Emil H. Peterson. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. Today we are joined by Icelandic author Amal H. Peterson. This is the first of several interviews from Archipelagon, where contributor Greg Palace met with several authors at the the Nordic science fiction and fantasy convention. So I think after this, when we actually have another three conversations, speaking of our last conversation, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Christy Cherish and Rob Matheny for getting the last episode put together. That's episode 307 with Lou Anders. I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation. I actually was in Lake Tahoe uh, Nevada cat slash California for about a week and a half for my day job. And when I wasn't busy performing duets with Michael Franti, yes, I was pulled on stage and singing with Michael Franti about a week ago. Uh, I was w- actually working really hard for my day job. And speaking of musicians, a musician will be our next guest. So next week we'll be bringing you Peter Arulian of the unremembered fame. Christy and I actually chat with him about his newest trial of intentions. I'm going to keep these comments extremely brief because I'm still kind of scraping myself off of the floor for my week and a half from being in Lake Tahoe. But until next time, take care. And I will tell you, watch our social media accounts because we have not two, not only the two, but we have three giveaways going on, or the third will be uh, be announced shortly. But I'm going to remind folks via social media, so watch our Facebook and Twitter feeds over the next week so you can participate in those two giveaways. One of those would be the week's giveaway, and then the other giveaway is for the Robert Brockway Unnoticeables giveaway. So watch for those giveaways. But until next time... Take care, everyone. Good morning. This is Greg Plechi for Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing here in beautiful Mariaham, Finland at Archipelagon. And today I'm sitting down with Emil H. Peterson of Iceland. Hi, Emil. Hi. How are you today? I'm, I'm, I'm very good, thank you. Uh, yeah, I've, I did my first panel yesterday and have some some program items today but tomorrow will be very busy and I just look forward to it. The atmosphere here is great. Fantastic. So you're an Icelandic author, correct? Yes. And uh, what have you written? Um, I started out as a poet and and published a couple of poetry collections in Iceland and then I got some like these new voices grant and you know some encouragement to, to really carry on and then I finally just decided to write speculative fiction in Icelandic, something that I had been experimenting for uh, quite some time. 
And the tradition for, for uh, uh, fantasy and sci-fi in Iceland is almost none. It, no, it was non-existent at, up until 2010, when I published my uh, first novel uh, called Saga Afterlivende, or Saga of Survivors, the first book in a trilogy, and, and the first book is called Höður and Baldur, or Höður and Baldur. And I finished the trilogy. It's now three, three books, all with the name Saga of Survivors and then a subtitle. And it's uh, it's been going really well at home. And uh, right now I'm, I'm pushing for, for international markets with it. And it's about the uh, about the Norse gods, the Aesir, that survived Ragnarök. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a continu- my continuation of the prophecy of the Seeress. And they failed to create a better world. They were divided into factions and lost control of the world. And so the same destiny was put forth. And, and the story begins. It's a parallel contemporary times. And another Ragnarök is imminent. So, And, you know, Hörður comes out of his exile and realizes that something is amiss. And uh, the story progresses into a post-apocalyptic saga, a big epic tale taking place in a, in a post-apocalyptic world. Interesting. And of course, this saga is a, very much a continuation of the Icelandic saga, so you, you, the history of your people, which is a mix of myth as well as, well, history, the culture that was going on at the time. It's a record of your people and, of course, the greater Nordic people. Yeah, yeah I, mainly, I mainly use the Norse mythology. Not really Icelandic sagas. There are some references to it, but the story takes place well in many parts of the world. Uh, for example, in Iraq, in China, uh, in Belgrade, and in the States. And it really like covers a lot of other mythology and folklore. It addresses multiculturalism and, and try to find parallels, you know, with within different mythologies and work with them, make make Norse mythology reflect on that. And as the story goes deeper and deeper into into what it is all about uh, there are questions about cause and effect and and the power of myth and, and so on you know it, it becomes stranger and stranger because another Ragnarok didn't take place but the chaos did and what happened was the creatures of the world came up to the surface and and uh, were in a civil war with humans and then in the year 2310 in the second common era the world is a wasteland but it's building up again from the ashes on different terms, not on the ISIS terms. Interesting. And so how does that continue in the two sequels? Uh, and you'll have to help me with the pronunciation. Uh, the sequel in Icelandic, uh, they're called Heljarthröm, which uh, means the threshold of hell. But the English working title is Words of Ruins. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's better th- that way. And the third one is called Nidhökkur, or Nidhökk. Mm-hmm. It's the serpent of the apocalypse. But in this book, Nithakuri is also an empire of the son of Loki, who is, has been resurrected and he's taking over. And the Baldur and, and Modi and the son of Thor have to fight against it. Excellent. So you said you're working on getting this into English. Do you have an English publisher? Not yet, but I have an agent for Eastern Europe. So uh, I'm, I'm getting there. I have promotional translations that I have here, like from some chapters that were funded by the Icelandic Literature Center and have been pro- professionally translated by a an, by an translator and I'm looking forward to read it for an audience here. Right now I'm sending it out and getting responses and the responses have been great. The cons that I've been to for the past three years here in Sweden and, and also in, in Florida, the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts. I've been there, mm-hmm. reading there and 
con great response. So I will just carry on until it. I'm, you know, what do you say at in home base. Yeah. I'm. Hope, I, I don't know where I am now. Second, third. I don't know. Excellent. You said that you received a grant from uh, the Icelandic government. Now, traditionally, particularly in the U.S., our perception of grants is it's always provided to those doing very literary work or poetry or other forms of art. Mm. It's never something that genre fiction receives. How was that received when you decided to write speculative fiction? Exactly. Uh, it was a leap of faith. Definitely a leap of faith because I, I had you know, gotten some reputation as a very, like, potential poet. And I started out with, when I got the idea, like, telling the tale of the survivors. You know, who are these survivors? There was a question in my head, in the back of my head for a long time. These are brothers, and they killed each other and, and were, were revived after Ragnarok. Why do these odd gods survive? So I saw some characters there. And I started out trying to impress some literary, some imagined literary establishment. And it didn't really work as an intellectual story of the blind god. So I, I started developing the other characters and I just saw this doesn't work unless I really write it as I want. And it would be a fantasy. And it became something more uh, than fantasy. It became post-apocalyptic and some steampunk as well. And, uh, and when it was published, people were surprised and also relieved that somebody took step forward because it, uh, fantasy and sci-fi had been marginalized in Iceland for a long time which is strange because we, we have this these uh, sagas and, and mythology and folklore rich that you know and we're just scraping the surface now uh, after 2010 uh, when, when the first novel came out then suddenly people came out of hiding and started like publishing fantasy sci-fi and the amazing thing is that I've gotten grants, I've gotten support from governmental institutions like the Literature Center. Uh, mainly, I think, because there are people out there in the, you know, establishment between, you know, quote, quote, quotation marks, um, that are generally interested in it. But, you know, they're just relieved that somebody is taking the step. Why do you think it took so long for that to happen when Iceland is one of the most prolific countries for not just reading but also producing literature and poetry I, it might just have to do with how few we are um, and, the, uh, and it takes a long time for one generation of, of writers to to take over from, from, the, from the prior one and uh, of course there's some lack of knowledge about it and when there's a lack of knowledge there's prejudice against it as well and people, uh, the generation before me, that are, I don't know, maybe seven to ten years older than I am, there are very strong speculative ele elements in their books, but they didn't want to call it sci-fi or fantasy, because they, I think they were afraid to, you know, be marginalized, not marketed, or publishing houses wouldn't take it in. So, actually, we, me and another Icelandic author and me uh, to, tomorrow are going to talk about that like a, a presentation about the new Icelandic scene, SFF scene. And we come up with some speculations about why. And, and, and it's also the structure of the Icelandic book market. Everything is published before Christmas and everybody buys books for Christmas. Not necessarily readers, you just give it as a, as a present. And there's kind of a mechanism with the publishing houses that they are afraid to change. A slight change or a drastic change in, in how, what kind of books are published and how it might ruin everything for them. So there are a lot of reasons and, and speculations about why, but things are changing for the better. So, Excellent. And where do you see 
Icelandic science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, fitting in with the wider Nordic subgenre of you know sci-fi fantasy. I think at least what I've seen and read, like Karen Tietbeck, uh, the the weirdness, you know, this tendency to make it weird, like some this new weird, new 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 genre, really. Uh, it's taking like the folklore into contemporary or realistic setting, uh, writing somewhere between mimetic and, and, and fantastic, some uncanny feeling. But then again, I mean, there are, of course, just uh, hard sci-fi out there and some steampunk I've seen as well. But if, if, if one is to talk about Nordic weird, it probably has to do with a lot of the folklore and the myths. And it's like, it's not too exotic, and it's Western, but not, it's very hard to explain. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't try to explain it. <laughs> uh, somebody will explain it in, in 20 years, <laughs> what it is all about. Okay, fair enough. Now, Iceland these days is seen in movies and TV. I mean, it's used for scenes because of its unique, sublime ecosystem. It, the, the land itself, you know, dictates how the people live and it provides such an inspiration for so ma many arts do you feel that your own country provides that same sort of inspiration for you though you did say that your books go elsewhere in the world yes i try to use the places i've been in the world in my books like somehow channel my experience into like channel a real experience into a fantasy but yes of course i mean i live here in sweden uh no, well, Holland is Finland, but I live in Sweden, in Lund in Sweden. But the landscape of Iceland and how Iceland is, the vastness and, and the uh, like, sometimes overwhelming, overwhelming landscape and, and, and not, no, no forest, only mountains and, 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 you know, these dark mountains and screaming at you at, at times. Yes, it, it, of course, somehow affects me and other artists musicians they've talked about it uh, and i think you know I, i'm writing a new novel now which solely takes place in iceland and it actually it's a new weird detective story and the protagonist really travels around iceland so so i will really take iceland and icelandic nature into into my new work i'm gonna go there next year and, and drive the circle once again around iceland and, and and you know be inspired again for my own own country but you know not in a nationalistic way. No, I'm, I mean, the reason using folklore and, and, and the mythology is, is not because of that. It's just a, a, a source of inspiration. Excellent. And now that you live in Sweden, do you, in your experience in the culture there and the wider Nordic and Scandinavian countries, do you see any differences between the literature that's produced by these countries? Uh, can you say, okay, this is Swedish Nordic weird and this is Finnish Nordic weird? They were talking about this uh, yesterday, Ta Karin Tietbeck and, and Johanna Sinisalo. Um, they were talking about maybe the Finnish and the Icelandic would be uh, probably the most weir weird ones <laughs> because they have so much darkness and, and, and they eat strange food. It was, of course, a joke, but yeah, I maybe the Swedes are more uh, have a tendency to be more concentrated, uh, more concentrated, whilst Icelanders are so they're chaotic. 
we we live in an, uh, Icelanders are really chaotic. We we live in an organized chaos, and we do everything last minute, but usually do it well. So, uh, but the Swedes they they um, they tend to to organize themselves beforehand, and they have much they're much more in control what they're doing. But they're really creative as well. It's just different. Uh, one might say that you know nations write differently because they have different characteristics. It might be the truth, might be not, but. Yeah, the, the, there might be some some slight differences there. And this chaos is that reflected in your writing process? Yeah, <laughs> quite quite a bit. I, I I am in control, but I don't want to be in too much control. And uh, a lot of the ideas, I put a lot of down a lot of ideas, uh, and for maybe weeks, everything is in total chaos. And then I sit down and organize through it, and in the end, I gain full control and then throw away stuff and or re rethink it and well the thing is that for example my trilogy is kind of a like a jigsaw puzzle uh, it takes place with concise flashbacks between main chapters it actually covers the whole story from Ginnungagap you know the gaping abyss just the beginning to Ragnarök and from Ragnarök to the year 2310 in the post world and then it also covers fragments of for example, Baldur, that's in the second book, the, the flashbacks there are Baldur through the history of man trying to change it, trying to prevent that the same destiny of the world takes place. So everything is linked. So you can see him in, Gre- in, in the Trojan War, in the French Revolution, in München when Hitler was trying to take over. He and Mo, they're trying to prevent some, you know, these points in time. So you get the feeling of of that the about the main chapters are maybe told within several months the inner time of the, of the of the main story is just i don't know 2 years whilst it covers millennia so i use this ta- cutting technique to try to tell the whole story but not in a in an overwhelming way hopefully um so that was a chaotic process but i i managed to put it all down in the end with all of this going on with you covering the myths of uh, Hodor and uh, Baldur from the beginning how do you balance the various interpretations of the myth for example um, if you read on Wikipedia about Hodor it immediately mentioned that he's the blind god tricked by Loki into killing Baldur with a spear of mistletoe mistletoe yes uh, and then uh, Hodor himself is killed by the giantess Vali, who is grown in a day. Yes, exactly, exactly. Vali, and then he is a, he is a son of Thor. And then, no, son of Odin. Sorry. Uh, so uh, actually, Baldur, Hodor, and Vali are all brothers. Vali, yeah, he grows in a day. Um, Odin goes out and and rapes a giantess, and uh, and that's actually. Vauli has to face his origin in the third book because he's the villain. He's the main villain in the first two books. And then uh, Narvi, son of Loki, t- actually stabs him in the back and takes over. And Vauli is this, he's actually, I think, in, in reviews, he has been mentioned as the most colorful and, and, and most interesting character because he's, at least when I wrote him, I thought about the Joker and Mussolini and combine those together because he's just a big child and he's totally crazy but he's he's a genius uh, so he's very very dangerous 
And in the end of the first book, we, we come to realize that he's trying to, with the golden tablets that they found, you know, as described in, in the end of the prophecy, is trying to use them to gain control of time and space. Uh, and that goes haywire in the end of the first book. And the thing is that, I want to mention that, you know, uh, yeah, well, also with the story of Höder and Baldur, the first book is called Höder and Baldur, but it's my interpretation of the, their relationship, because there are other versions, as you say, the Germanic version. And in that version, also written by the Danish uh, writer Grammo Saxatigus, uh, no, no, sorry, uh, Saxo Grammaticus, uh, he, uh, in his version, it's Höderus and Balderus, and then Nanna, who is, as we know, as, as, as Balder's wife, she is, she is uh, Höderus' lover, and they, they duel for her hand. So that isn't the version that we know. We know that, that Nanna is the wife of Balder, and Loki tricks Höder to kill him, but I combined these two. There's, uh, she was a wife of Höder in my story. He actually took, took her away from him. So maybe he has an underlying reason to want to kill his brother. But it never comes forth. So I, I make this love triangle. And the first book is actually a Save the Princess story. A failed Save the Princess story. Where their motivation, the both of them, their motivations. And they, they're in different places. I cut between them. And then they meet in the end in Baulis secret hideout in Camp Hero at Montauk Peninsula in the, in the States uh, where he's trying experimenting with bending time and space because apparently the, there were conspiracy theories that the American army was doing some experiments there with the same thing at this Camp Hero place. So, and he, he kidnapped Nanna to try to manipulate the brothers to his bidding. And the thing is that, sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> I want to uh, tell about that, you know, it's a, it's a failed Save the Princess story, and it's the fall of the, we can start to see the fall of the uh, ISIS patriarchy, because all the survivors are, are male, and then, you know, they, they resurrect their, their females, and, and the female characters start to be more prominent as, as the story progresses. I always follow the original myths. I do a lot of research on the myths I use, not only the Norse mythology. I add to them. I don't change them. This new book that you're working on, it's taking you back to Iceland and you described as a weird detective story. What more can you tell us about that? It surprises me that nobody has really told a story like this. But I, I don't want to say too much at this point. Just that, you know, I, I'm going back to, to Iceland with my, with my writing. And it's more concentrated. It's a first-person view. Uh, mainly told. It's mainly we're following mainly one character instead of, I don't know, twenty. <laughs> and it's a different process then. And you know, and it has more attitude uh, because the main character that is telling the story has this. She's an outsider and uh, yeah has to deal with a lot of weirdness in her life. Um, but it's a uh, yeah. I, I hopefully hopefully we'll we'll uh, publish it next year. Excellent. And uh, you're writing that in Icelandic? Yes. Um, and I've started writing short stories now in, in, uh, in English. Uh, I realized that, you know, to have some frame of reference, I have to have something finished in English. So, actually, I finished a short story the other day, which is also, like, uh, set in an alternative Iceland, very close future, alternative Iceland, uh, kind of a steampunkish folklorist story. And actually, I like the story, <laughs> and I hopefully it's it's good enough in English. I'm, I'm 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 hopefully somebody out there will will publish it, so I can you know, if some if I then I can, 
you know, say to people, well, you can look at my, my stuff at this or this webpage. I mean, that, that's the way it goes, right? Uh, a lot in, in the Anglo-Saxon world. You publish short stories to be able to, to have some frame of reference, uh, have, some fi- have something finished. It's also fun to write short stories. I think the flashbacks uh, in the trilogy... That actually, I realized those were all concise short stories. And when I started writing short stories in, in English more, I felt confident with that form because I had done so much in it in the trilogy. And how do you find English compared to Icelandic as a language? I don't know much about the structure of Icelandic or you know the, the syntax and what you're capable of doing with it. But uh, do you find one to be better at description or... What's the feeling you have for Icelandic compared to English? I always feel that I can do better. It takes some years to really get hang of writing, and then when you've gotten hang of it, you feel like, whoa, there's so much to learn. I can, and when, you, and when I finish a book, like this was the best I could do now. And then two days later, I think I can do better. And that's, that's what drives me. And in Icelandic, Icelandic is... It is a tricky language. It always surprises me. Like with, and sometimes I feel the more I know and the better I get, the less I know. Maybe one of the things I want to improve on in Icelandic is just different tones in conversations, giving, giving characters you know, more distinct voices. I think, I think I can do better at that. I think I'm, I'm good at building up scenes and I always want to improve my, my uh, vocabulary. And in English, Compared to English, it's just... Well, it's of course with all the idioms. I'm not a native speaker. So the first promotional translation from the first book, for example, I translated myself, like, four years ago. But then I got this grant for, for getting a real translator. And it was totally different. We, because he, he's bilingual and he's na- native speaking. And, you know, he could really add flavor to, to the text. He could take the Icelandic idioms and work with them in English. So this is something I, I want to improve on in, uh, and, I want, and I'm, I'm going to start writing much more in English but I'm not, I, I will still write in Icelandic because that was my main mission to begin with, to write speculative fiction in Icelandic for Icelandic readers for them to enjoy it and they have started to accept that this is possible. You can actually read fantasy and sci-fi it doesn't sound lame you don't have to read it all in, in English. My understanding is that Icelandic has an academy for the language which determines the words that are being created Mm -hmm. as as new technologies and new phrases come along rather than just adopting the English or German or any other language's word. So when you're writing speculative fiction, which is, as you say, some of the first that's being produced in Icelandic, and you're having to come up with new terms how are these being accepted by the wider literary community in iceland that's one of those challenges i had to face i had to really look into old dictionaries because we are actually rekindling old words that are not used anymore Uh, like the word from mana or ectoplasm i had to really search for the word for for ectoplasm Uh, it's fjarfrimi I found it in a book about uh, mediums. It's the it's the essence that that it connects the medium to the other world. Fjarfrimi and mana in Icelandic is dulmáttur, hidden power. So I use those, and we actually there's no phantom in Iceland, no organized phantom yet. But there's there are, for example, this Facebook group, uh, and there we 
for example, uh, well, mostly authors are active uh, in the discourse. And we talk about how can you say this and that in, in Icelandic. An author of the other day, just a couple of days ago, hey, how do you say pole arms? What's the best word for that? And then when we came up with a discussion, we like, oh, yeah, this character in this Icelandic saga, he had this pole arm. You know, and we try to find the word. And, and usually, you know, it's, it's accepted. Uh, and, uh, and I think the, you know, the Icelandic literature world establishment, what, what do you like to call it, are starting to realize that, that we're actually doing a really good thing there. Because Icelandic, the, the gram, grammar system, this, I don't know, it offer, yeah, with the, as you mentioned, with new words for new technology, it's accessible in that way. Like the, the word for computer is tölva, which is a combination of tala, which is a number, and völva, which is a series. So it's a... A number seer. Yes. <laughs> very, very fantastical language in a way. Uh, yeah, like, not fantastic language, but you know, it's, you don't realize it in everyday life. But when you start, start to think about it, there are all kinds of le- like these weird... Yeah, I've heard the uh, term for TV is something like box that projects magic image. Yes, sjónvarp. So projecting something to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Now, when you were writing your books, was there anything that you just felt like it would be best simply taking it from English to another language or you had to invent entirely on its own? No, actually, I, I managed to, I think, find Icelandic words that are fitting for, for most of concepts and, and phenomena. Excellent. And since... This uh, new language for speculative fiction is a community effort. Is anyone out there documenting this? You know, creating a wiki or you know a, a place where everyone, our listeners, can go and uh, see what uh, the discussion is. Not at the moment, but probably. I mean, after five years of, of developing, I think it's reaching a point where something that like that will will take place and. Hopefully, like a web magazine will be will be established. I mean, one can hope. Uh, it's also the authors are, are most active in the discourse. It's it's probably what we need is a uh, more culture around it. You know, more more people like here, <laughs> like organizing uh, things. Really, like genuinely interested in 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 fancy sci-fi and want to see it flourish in Iceland, uh, as we authors do. There's this store in Iceland called Nexus which is like the prominent fancy sci-fi store, and they organize all kinds of events. But it's not an organized phantom, but, but that's like the center of, of this culture in Iceland, and, and it's actually just, it's just growing and growing. It's not going to, to, to disappear, so... Where can people find you online? Yeah, I have a homepage, emilhpetersen.com. Peterson with an E, S-E-N, correct? Yeah, emilhpeterson.com. Uh, it, it recently opened. Like uh, I only had a homepage for the trilogy, but now I'm, you know, starting writing much more of other stuff as well. So uh, it was time to open a special homepage, and uh, and I'm working. Well, there's an English section, but I'm, I'm working on, on on adding much more to it, and there will be sample chapters uh, in a while. And then I'm, I'm, I'm of course on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, okay, your accounts are? Uh, Instagram, Emil H. Peterson. Is there any other Icelandic authors you'd like to mention? There's, for example, an author called Steinar Bragi. Uh, he had been writing for a long time. He actually started this indie publishing house that I started with, with Poetry Books. 
And he's, he writes, like, he's always written some, you know, slightly speculative stuff. Uh, but he's moving now more. Like, he was writing a horror, horror book a couple of years ago. Steiner Breyer and Schoen. Have you, have you ever heard the one, the show? Yes, I've read uh, the mouth From the Mouth of the World. Yes, that's a very good book. Uh, and he he actually really, he's really into fantasy and sci-fi, I know. Uh, but he, he he's always like on the in-between. He's, he's, it's literary fiction slash spec- speculative fiction. And, he, and he's really good. He's, he started out as a surrealistic poet and, uh, and he's... Uh, and he's much into myths and stuff like that, you know, re- reworking myths. And I, 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 lo- I love that kind of stuff. And then, Gvudrun uh, Eva Minervedottir. Okay. Yeah, she writes as well some some stuff that could be considered speculative, and she's really good. And then there are the authors, you know, fantasy sci-fi authors. One of them is called Alexander Dan. And then there are a couple of guys who are writing young adult, high fantasy, uh, Kjartan Ingvi and Snæbjörn Brynjarsson. And actually, there's a Facebook group called Furðusagna Félag Íslands, or the Weird Stories Society of Iceland. And you can f- find us all there, all our names, <laughs> if you, t- if you uh, didn't catch the pronunciation. So. Okay, excellent. Right. Well, thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of our Capelicon. Thank you very much. Enjoyable. MLH Peterson will also be at the Reykjavik International Literary Festival this September, which will include David Mitchell and Kim Stanley Robinson. For Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing at Archipelagon in Mariaham, Finland, I'm Gregory Palachi. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventures in sci-fi publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.